One of the very biggest tasks for anybody who tries to communicate the truths of the Bible is to help ourselves and then help those we're communicating to to enter into the text. It could be entering into it emotionally or in terms of the psychological, social context out of which a text emerges. So I thought this morning as you look at the screen that we might try to help ourselves to get into the heart of the loving, waiting, seeking Father through the lens of New York City and 9-11. It's been many years, but at least for me, viewing these images again brings you quickly back to the emotional setting in which we saw posters like Lost, My Wife Susan. She worked on the 93rd floor of Tower One. It's another postcard that said, has anyone seen my brother Miguel? One that I'll never forget with the faces of two little kids that simply says, our daddy is missing. This begins just a little bit to get us into the heart of the loving, waiting, seeking father. And perhaps right away it makes us ask questions like, does God really want to find and save out-of-control liberals? What about scary conservatives? I mean, I'm just trying to get you to figure out, you know, in the vernacular of the day, who you hate, right? Or what about radical religionists or sexual progressives? Or those who've rejected church and religion? Or what about people we don't like, or who frustrate us or make us mad? The Pharisees for whom this parable was ultimately directed were the conservatives of their day. They were deeply frustrated by what they saw happening around them, especially what was happening through Jesus. They thought that their nation and their religion was being perverted or hijacked or stolen from them and that Jesus was the ringleader of this activity. So our text opens by telling us in Luke 15 that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. Now what's happening here is that in Jesus' day, sinners were thought to have forfeited their relationship with the Father because they broke the law. And for a Jew of Jesus' time, eating would have been the, the most normal and perhaps biggest symbol of togetherness. And so you have a clash here of worldviews. Religionists who think that bad people or sinners shouldn't be with God, and Jesus who wants to reveal precisely the waiting, watching, loving Father. And so the tax collectors and sinners are having a completely different reaction to Jesus. They sense that Jesus cares for them and that he has something to say to them. And I don't have time to go very far down this trail, but I have to admit, sitting with this passage this weekend, 
I found myself more than once wondering, Lord, in terms of evangelism, how could we capture that the sinners of our day sense that we care for them? That we're not the haters of society? That the church's primary role isn't to be a social nag? Like, is there a way that we could ever recover that the people who are precisely and specifically rejecting us would know that we care for them? And then this seems almost impossible to ask for, that that they would ever come to think that we have something to say to them. (laughs) But the people with Jesus, they seriously thought that they coveted his teaching. This is why the gospels say when he taught, people's crowd said, we've never heard anyone teach like this. We sense that he has something to say to us, that there is some other reality from which he speaks and teaches that we're not aware of, and we want to connect to it. And so that Jesus would eat with sinners was especially galling to the religious leaders of his day because it conveyed this full sense of acceptance. And this is what they couldn't get their brains wrapped around. But this sort of acceptance where these people were, not to leave them there, but to accept them where they were was Jesus's exact goal. He wanted to draw them to God through his presence with them. But all they could see was an indiscriminate welcome of sinners which then led to their anger. And so then Jesus tells this parable that there was a man who had two sons, each lost in its own way. The younger son had severely insulted his father, took his inheritance, and then squandered it in reckless living. But the core offense here is not the prodigious level of his sin. This is where the word prodigal comes from, that this man sinned so, you know, blatantly and recklessly. But that's not, at least in my opinion, what's at the core here. That's simply a a symbol of something else. What's core here is wanting to sever the relationship with his father, to leave the father. But the older brother shows in his bad temper that he has no more real respect for his father than his younger brother had had. He lectures his father in front of his guests, refuses his plea to come in, But yet once more, the father is generous, this time to the self-righteous older son. And this is the big picture the parable seeks to paint. The younger son or the older son coming to their senses and in different ways coming home. But thinking here of the the young son coming home from his wild living and hitting bottom and feeding pigs and being so hungry because of the famine that he actually found himself wishing he had the kind of, he could eat the, the food of the pigs. Listen to these verbs about the father. The father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, and kissed, and put on robe, a ring, sandals, and killed the fatted calf. Now think with me here for a moment about your Lenten journey and perhaps about just your own onward discipleship to Christ. The Father sees you. And it's a pretty natural reaction to in some ways recoil from that, right? Like, uh uh-oh. But what if receiving robe, ring, sandals, fatted calf, forgiveness, heaven, what if that all naturally by definition has to begin with a seeing? 
It has to begin with God seeing what's actually real about us. And in that moment, we're actually becoming safe. This is the beginning step of him then feeling compassion towards us. And I can speak for myself and haven't been at this for 40 years. I'll bet I can speak for the average Christian that the average Christian does not actually believe that God has compassion for them in their persistent sin. Not really. I mean, we might kind of think that in our head. If it was a theological pop quiz, we might be able to, you know, answer the right, you know, check the right box, put down the right letter. But you talk about just sort of daily living. I don't think the average Christian thinks that what God sees about us that we think is nasty, nasty and twisted and marred, that he has compassion on. We think he's ticked off. And in fact, again, we don't have long for a, a theological rabbit trail here, but take Dennis to coffee someday and he can <laughs> help you walk this through. But I'm telling you, there are apparently a couple of pictures in the New Testament. There's this God, and then there's the one that everybody thinks just lives angry and has to constantly placate himself. And it, it is a bit of subtlety to reconcile these things together because God is sometimes pictured as angry. But how do we reconcile that with, but this is a God who also has compassion on his creation who doesn't say, forget you, Adam, but says, Adam, you just screwed everything up, like everything. Where are you? You hear the relationality in that? The, the, you know, the seeds of compassion? Adam, where are you? This is like an ancient symbol of God running to broken creation, embracing broken creation kissing broken creation. This is what emerges in our reading in Joshua. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And this interim time you've had of eating manna is going to go away and you're now going to enter the promised land and eat the produce of that land. Paul is getting at something like this when he says in our, on our epistle reading that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. So I want to suggest to you this morning that in these readings is an invitation. An invitation to trust the waiting, watching, and loving Father. If you do me a favor, um, open your orders of worship and look back at the collect for purity that we began with this morning. And let's think this through in terms of this parable. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open. Yikes. Yeah, the heart you brought in here this morning, ticked off, frustrated, tired, happy, whatever. The heart that you brought in here, God sees. His father saw him. But trusting that he has compassion on us, knowing all of our desires and having no secrets that are hidden from him. This gives us the faith, the hope to actually pray, not just say, but pray, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts against the background of a father who we know sees and feels compassion and runs towards us, embraces us, kisses us, gives us gifts. It's to him, precisely him, who we say cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. That... This is, this is some of my favorite language in all the prayer book, that we might perfectly love you, 
that all the aspects of what makes us human, body, soul, spirit, will, mind, heart, our social self, all that would somehow be zipped up in a kind of perfection or buttoned up like a coat, you know, perfectly love you. That's not a moralism. That's a picture of wholeness. That's a, that's a picture of inner shalom, of wholeness and wellness and goodness. And then worthily magnify your holy name. Or think of the confession that we pray week in and week out. We've not been in Lent, but think of our normal, compress, our normal confession. It begins with the words, not accidentally, most merciful God. O oh God who emerges out of these parables, seeing, feeling, running, embracing, kissing, we confess that we've sinned against thee. Now think of the prodigal. I wish I could use more colorful language. Uh, forget you, dad. Just think of that thought that went through his head. Forget you, dad. Then he says the words, give me my inheritance. Then he does the deeds. He splits and wastes his dad's money in sinful living. He sinned in thought and word and deed by what he had done and what he had left undone by staying loyal to his father. Of course, we had, he had not loved him with his whole heart. He had not loved his neighbors like his brother. And again, if we could understand the Jewish setting of the day, the shame that this would have brought on his family, he hadn't loved his neighbors as he loved himself. But eating the food of pigs, he begins to become truly sorry and to humbly repent and to go back into his father's house seeking that he could somehow learn to delight in his father's will and walk in his father's ways to the glory of his name. The backdrop of all that is not an angry God who's just looking for to find some way to smash you, but is a father who always sees your real heart. You couldn't stop him if you wanted. Who always feels compassion, is always running towards you, is always seeking to embrace and kiss and robe and ring and sandal and a fatted calf you. To fatted calf you so much that you're pig-proofed forever. That there would be something so fascinating, so good about God and his kingdom, so alluring to you that everything else would just look like the food of pigs. So that you don't any longer have to live a grunting sort of moralistic Christian life that tries not to like the food of pigs but feasting so much on God and the goodness and power and rightness of his kingdom that nothing else seems interesting. It really does zip up your life and does so, of course, in overflow for the sake of others. So concluding, I, I couldn't find the address for this, but I, I remembered this quote from now on and found it somewhere. I think this is uh, in his book on um, this parable. Now one writes, here's the mystery of life unveiled. I'm loved so much that I'm free to leave home. And this bliss, blessing has been there from the beginning. I have left home and I keep on leaving it. But the father is always looking at me with outstretched arms to receive me back and whisper in my ear again, you are my beloved. On you, 
my favor rests. As we come to our quiet time this morning, I want to invite you to think some thoughts with me. Maybe bring to your mind the sinners that you're quick to judge. We all do it. Just bring your favorite ones before your mind. And then place in the background behind them a waiting, watching, and loving Father. Think of the sinners that you just don't want anything to do with. And place in the background behind them a waiting, watching, and loving Father. Think about your own persistent sins. Maybe your regret about a really big sin or about your own moments of leaving the father of what we might have called earlier backsliding. Or our own inconsistencies as followers of Jesus. And know that lying behind them is a waiting, watching, and loving father. And that this truth arising out of this parable is a fundamental truth of the spirit upon which you can always rely.